Hi, welcome to Tube to Table, the podcast about helping tube-fed kids become happy and healthy eaters. Every week, we will dive into the basics of tube weaning to help unravel the conflicting information families get from doctors, therapists, friends, and family. I'm Jenny, a feeding therapist, mom, and food lover. And I'm Heidi. I'm also a feeding therapist, and I love sharing meals with friends and family and helping kids learn to eat. Come with us as we share practical tips and provide real-world expert advice so that parents can help their little ones start their journey from feeding tube to family table. Hi, and welcome to episode three of the Tube to Table podcast, Hungry for More. Today, we thought we'd talk a little bit more about who we are and how we got to where we are. So Jenny, if you want to start and tell us a little bit about you and who you are and how you got here. Sure. So I am Jenny Berry. I am the owner of Thrive by Spectrum Pediatrics, and I'm an occupational therapist. About 15 years ago, I started Spectrum Pediatrics in Northern Virginia, and I started the company to provide services for kids with all sorts of different special abilities and needs. And even though we worked with kids across different spectrums of abilities and needs, I always personally had a special place in my heart for helping kids overcome feeding challenges. And I have been working in the area of feeding for about 20 years now. And it's something that I really care about a lot. And it's something that we've really focused on at Spectrum Pediatrics to the point where it became more than just kind of something that was interesting to us and became a real specialty of ours. And so that's where Thrive by Spectrum Pediatrics was born. And Thrive by Spectrum Pediatrics is our feeding specialty division. And Heidi, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself today? I would. So I started as a teacher in an early intervention program and did home visits and loved working with preschool age children and their families. And then I started being interested in being a little bit more specialized. So I got into speech pathology and worked at the Children's Hospital for 16 years So I got into feeding and swallowing because I thought it was much more clear cut than some of the other things. And interestingly, the more I do it, the more I realize it's probably the most complex thing. Little did you know you were (laughs) exactly right. (laughs) So the most complex thing that we do, it's not simple at all. And there's so many layers. But I think those are the layers that I that I like so much. So as I said, I'd been working in feeding and swallowing at the children's hospital, and I had all these kids that weren't doing what I thought they should be doing because they had the skills. A great family that I was working with that was also looking around for why the motor skills of feeding and swallowing were there, why kids would start eating and then hit a wall when they were on feeding tubes. And so then I started searching for something else, searching for that missing piece. And that's when I interacted with Jenny at then Spectrum Pediatrics. So before Heidi began looking and asking those questions, I, interestingly enough, had been doing the same thing. So about 10, 12 years ago, a couple of years into Spectrum Pediatrics, I started to realize that the techniques I had learned both in grad school and in my you know, first several years of practice as a, as a young therapist were helping a little bit, but not really making a huge difference in the quality of life of kids on feeding tubes. So what do I mean by that? So I would get a kid on my caseload that had a feeding tube. I would work very intensely in the home or in our office with that child and their family on all the skills, if you could like break them down from behavior to, you know, family mealtime interactions to the sensory processing piece of it to oral motor skills. I was doing everything I was taught to do. 
And the kids might make small gains, but they were really still on their feeding tubes and they didn't really love food anymore at the end of the day. They might be taking more bites, but they kind of, it felt to me like they were doing it for the wrong reasons. So I had worked really hard (laughs) to get where I wanted to be and creating this business. And I just wasn't going to be okay with it, not, I don't know, making a difference. And so I started to ask myself, why don't these kids want to eat? Like, what, what is this missing piece? And I started just, just barely touching the surface and looking at some research way back. We're talking, you know, 10, 12 years ago. What motivates children to eat and what helps kids learn to eat in a way that's lasting, both tube-fed kids and kids with other feeding challenges. And I started to realize that kids needed to learn to trust and understand food and their bodies in order to really, truly want to get over whatever was challenging them around feeding in a meaningful way that was lasting. And so anyways, I I went on vacation with a dear friend of mine. And while we were on vacation, she confided in me that she was pregnant. And fast forward nine months later, she calls me from the NICU in a hospital because she had gone into labor. There had been an emergency during the delivery Her child had lost oxygen and they were in a very emergent situation and he was getting a feeding tube. So she called me and said, help me. I had confided in her that I was going through this kind of professional, I don't know, transformation and really trying to re-examine what I was doing. Not because she was a therapist, but because she was somebody that was, you know, a thinker and really creative. And I just was kind of sharing that with her. So there she found herself in this situation and she called me to ask for help. She actually ended up moving to Virginia briefly to live close to me. And we worked really hard on the foundational skills for trust and understanding and how to prevent, to do what you can. You can't always prevent feeding aversion, but to do what we could to help prevent her son's feeding aversion. So the day her son was born, (laughs) I committed myself as a professional, but also as a friend that loved this little boy (laughs) to never ever being willing to take what was happening, kind of like the status quo in therapy as what we were going to do at Spectrum Pediatrics. And I really committed myself to finding a new way to do things. My friend was really resourceful, as, as most moms <laughs> of kids that, that need, to, need something to help them are. And she actually, after I had kind of gotten to a certain point and educated her with the information I had at the time about you know, trust and understanding, but also about skill, she was able to find somebody that worked in a very European model of what they called at the time rapid or hunger weans. And she ended up hiring somebody privately that came to the United States and weaned her son and several kids from their feeding tubes. I ended up hiring that person. We ended up collaborating for a short period of time. And what I learned from those kind of European models of programs was that hunger was a really important missing element of what we were doing in the United States. I feel like, and Jenny, that is probably about the time when I came into contact with you because I had done a different journey, but I had also been to see everybody that was a known expert in the world of feeding and swallowing and had come really to it from the swallowing piece of things that didn't explain why all these kids who could swallow, why all these kids who started out eating with kind of a rocky start who would maybe do some eating and then lose it or appear to lose those skills or lose interest or lose trust. We couldn't quite get at the heart of what the problem was. And I encountered a family as well who had done a lot of research 
um, who had looked around and came to me and said, you know, what, what do you think about this, this missing piece of hunger? And I said, you know, I think that's great. I think you should go to that program and I think I should go with you. <laughs> so I, I went with JP and his family and spent a day with you. And we talked about a lot of things and it explained some of what I knew about oral motor, I think. And we'll talk a little bit more about the role of that, I think. But that's when our paths intersected around the time when you were working through some of that hunger piece and then working through all of those pieces is when we came in contact. And I think in the beginning, it did seem like hunger was such a big, big piece because that was that was the piece that was missing. I think for both Heidi and I, like there was like, and also kind of people that embraced hunger weans or rapid weans in the early days, there was this like really radical change in how we looked at things. And it was important. So like when Heidi talks about that oral motor piece of it, I think Heidi and I both had been working with kids that had motor deficits that we were like really working on skills. And you as parents who have kids that are in feeding therapy, you know the terms, you know about the tongue lateralization and you know about all of the munching and all of the terms that you're working on in your therapies. We had all those skills. We were doing all that work. And when we paired it with hunger and motivation, like true motivation on behalf of the kids, the results were pretty impressive. And I think that kind of is what brought us together, really. Like seeing that happen and then being convinced that this was a really important thing that we had to pay attention to got the ball rolling. But then Heidi's right. At a certain point, it became obvious that hunger by itself wasn't a magic bullet and that we had to look at the division of responsibility, which we discussed in the last episode, which is the paradigm that Ellen Satter created that is evidence-based and essentially points out that a parent's role, if you're going to raise happy and healthy eaters, is to determine when kids are eat and what they are served and where they are fed. And that a child's responsibility is to be in charge of their own body, which means they're in charge of determining if they eat it at all, and if so, how much. And so when we started combining that really well researched approach to things, which helps kids feel autonomous and have trust over their bodies. And it helps parents kind of navigate the different roles that come with having a kid that's tube fed and all of the competing recommendations that you're getting. We started to see even more progress. We started to really see changes being made in a different way that were more comprehensive than what we originally saw when we just started using hunger. It's funny because when we first started talking about the division of responsibility again, I had heard about that years before and explored it a little bit and had decided that it was a great idea for healthy kids. It was a great idea for kids who knew how to eat, but for our little fragiles or our little ones who never felt hunger, kids on a feeding tube, it just seemed like it didn't work for them. So I had dismissed it and thinking, yeah, that's for healthy kids. That's not for for these kids, but what we didn't add in and what we didn't understand and what needed to be added back in is again, this piece of hunger. If you don't know what hunger is, or if you've never felt hunger, or if you felt it a couple times and didn't know what it was, you weren't just going to jump into a m- automatically doing everything. You know, you weren't automatically going to start going independently and, and being able to do the whole thing that baby steps are part of the learning process for everything. And that includes this division of responsibility that baby steps were there, but you needed the motivator to get started. You yeah. needed... You needed to be hungry. You needed to know that it was something you needed to be a part of. Yeah. And I think that when we started looking at both the division of responsibility, trust, 
the interactions between parent and child, making sure that we are preserving a child's kind of autonomy over their own body and also what that does for their ability to trust food, but also trust the people that are feeding them that food. I think it really started both in terms of academically, if you will, or intellectually, it started to make a lot more sense to us. But then the results were just really, really impressive. We started to see things make a whole lot more of an impact on kids' lives. And we started seeing kids that were tube-fed become tube-free. So what we realized was that this initial correction in the U.S. away from kind of the traditional, which we now know is not as evidence-based treatment models that come from a more um, symptom-based treatment, treating the symptoms of the problem versus the root of the problem, that was replaced with hunger-based or rapid weans. But that hunger-based or rapid weans, as they came to the United States out of Europe, had a couple of missing elements. They overestimated or overemphasized hunger, in our opinion, and, and as far as we can see in our data now, now that we're doing it a little bit differently, that hunger was super important, but that it wasn't the answer. That was one of the things that was different about what we discovered. Another thing that was different was that it could be done in a way that was safe <laughs> and where parents didn't have to go out on their own and have make risks that were scary medically for their child. So the early days, I think that that kind of radical shift meant that you had to like go against the grain in terms of your medical team. You had to kind of leave them by the wayside and do something really radical, get your kids really hungry, really dry and risk dehydration and, and extreme weight loss. And that A, wasn't ever going to be something that we were comfortable with as therapists, but also has proven not to be necessary at all. That yes, there are some things that we you know, have to do in order to help kids get hungry and understand the meaning of food and why it's important and trust it, but that we can do that in medically safe parameters in conjunction with medical teams. And then like the other piece that stopped making sense to both Heidi and I, but also as a company at Thrive by Spectrum Pediatrics was that play, as we discussed in last week's episode, was important. But that play picnics, as they were brought to the United States, play picnics, which was essentially like we talked about just this model of putting a picnic blanket down on the ground and getting babies, toddlers, kids exposed to tons of different food that was spread out all over the place and let them do what they wanted, wasn't right for every family and every kid. And in fact, for many of the kids that did that, ended up coming back to us. It was overwhelming. They did it only because they were extremely hungry or in a really bad place, but that having all that food and sensory information around them when they hadn't had it before could really cause them to shut down and be really overwhelming. So we met right around then when we were discovering that at, at Thrive, that we were, we were Spectrum at the time, that we were discovering that we weren't quite in line with that, that we wanted it to be safer that we wanted hunger to be a part of it, but we realized it wasn't the magic bullet and that play picnics weren't the answer. That play and rest were part of getting us there, but that we didn't have to push kids to their limits, both medically or in terms of overwhelming them with food in a picnic. I think one of the things we found, Jenny, is we've tried more and more to involve kids, existing medical teams, that we've, we've actually found a really big benefit of bringing doctors along with us to understand the importance of kids getting hungry and the importance of working with families. I think that's probably one of the biggest side benefits is the relationships that we've been able to build with kids' doctors to talk about normal, typical eating patterns and how that does apply for these kids. So it's a challenge sometimes to pull 
the medical team away a little bit from just thinking in the medical box. Yeah. And the feedback we get from parents is that when you're asked to leave your medical team by the wayside, it's risky. It's scary. Most of the time, these kids have been through a lot medically and their doctors are the people that save their lives. They're the doctors are the people that not only they relied on to keep their kids safe up until the point where they were or, you know, in the, in the distant past, but also they're the people that they're going to rely on to keep them healthy in the future. So when you erode that trust and you no longer work together, it's a problem. We understand why that happened initially because I think physicians, as we've discussed in a previous episode and we have an entire episode devoted to in the future, you know, physicians get very little training on how kids learn to eat in order to set them up for a lifetime of healthy eating. And so instead of just saying, well, they don't know, let's cut them out of the picture, what we like to encourage parents to do and what we ourselves do at Thrive by Spectrum Pediatrics is we work together with doctors. We give them the information that they didn't get (laughs) when they were in school that they don't have now about the things that put kids eating at risk for their lifetime, things that can happen around food that put kids' health at risk. We educate doctors about those things by providing with information that they don't have And then we say to them, hey, let's work together. Let's work together to keep this kid safe because we want kids to be safe and we want parents to have lasting um, and trusting relationships with their physicians. And so if we can address that problem from the ground up too, all the better. So Jenny, one of the things I think we were hoping to do in this episode is, is talk a little bit about how we do frame then. We've talked a lot about our past history. We've talked a lot about how we ended up where we ended up. Can we talk a little bit about maybe the context or the framework that we're putting all of these different pieces into. So I guess just a quick summary of what we actually do in our tube weaning program (laughs) is we help kids learn to trust and understand food. And part of that involves being hungry and learning how to have happy and healthy family mealtimes. So in this episode, we are going to talk, I think it's helpful if we dive into the hunger piece because it's one of our most common questions. Parents come to us and they're like, but we got our kid hungry and it didn't work. Or we got our kids hungry and it's not enough. Or we've done everything our feeding therapists and doctors have said and they're still not eating. So Heidi, you have a really great analogy that I love to hear about hunger and how we learn to eat. And so if you could just help us understand the role of hunger in this process. One of the things that I've always seen, what what I know from all the literature about rehabilitation, about working with all the motor abilities, which means moving your mouth for eating and talking and walking and all of those different things, is that if you're just doing these activities meaninglessly, then it's like learning to swim while you're standing on the deck. You're flapping your arms around, but you're not swimming. So one of the things that I had seen when I was doing oral motor or like mouth movement exercises that weren't related to intentionally eating is that they didn't necessarily lead to eating. They would learn to whatever activity we were doing. I I would see kids that had chewed on a brush and they would make their jaw go up and down, up and down, chew, 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 but the food wouldn't be between their teeth and then they would swallow it because what they had practiced doing was chew, chew, chew on something that wasn't food. So they didn't have to move their mouth or whatever. They didn't have to move the food around. They would just move their jaws and the food would stay in one place and it wouldn't get broken down. So they were doing exactly what they've been taught, which is the same thing as standing on the deck and swimming with your arms that didn't have any water. Right. You can't be a swimmer if you only take swimming lessons in a pool without water. 
you can learn something as an adult, certainly by like watching videos and stuff about what to do. But until you're in the water, the actual mechanics or, you know, understanding of how to swim doesn't occur. And I like to take Heidi's analogy of swimming because I love it a step further and talk about a little bit about what hunger is not. So hunger isn't magic. So the water, just like the water in the pool doesn't teach you how to swim, you still have to learn how to swim. Just because they fill the pool up with water and you get in it doesn't mean you know how to swim. That's like hunger. Just because kids are hungry or just because you give them a long period of time without a tube feed doesn't mean that they're magically going to start eating. And so I just like to remind people that because we get that feedback a lot. We still have, there's still work to do on trust, on understanding, on the interactions, on helping parents read kids' cues, but also on the stuff that everybody addresses in feeding therapy. The, the, the mouth, <laughs> the behaviors, the interactions, the sensory processing and how they tolerate it, the actual eating itself, the bringing the food to your mouth, the reaching, all of that stuff, all of the components that go into helping a child eat still have to be addressed, just like you still have to learn how to swim when the water's in the pool. And I think that really helps it come alive for parents sometimes when they realize that most of the time in most programs in the United States, there's no water in the pool. (laughs) Kids aren't experiencing hunger in a meaningful way. I think it sounds so funny sometimes if you haven't thought about it, but really eating starts with reflexes and drives. You know, we have the drive, the the just basic physiologic need for food. We have that drive. And very early on, we have reflexes that help drive that process. A sucking reflex is probably the biggest one that we talk about. And eventually those become learned and integrated into what we do. But because none of us remember that period, it doesn't look like something that we understand at all. We understand hunger differently now than we did as a tiny, tiny infant. And we eat for lots of different reasons. So one of the things that we're doing as we teach kids past that newborn infant stage is we still have some of the drives and reflexes, but not not the whole full kit that we had when we were an infant. And so it comes about a little bit differently, but it's still learned. In all those cases, it's learned. You just have a different set of tools every time at a different age. That's so true. And so let's talk just briefly about like the actual drives, natural drives for learning to eat. Not the feeding therapy drives, not the like what you've been taught to do drives, but what really truly should motivate a child to eat. If they're out of that kind of reflexive phase, which most kids that are on feeding tubes are because they were in that reflexive phase when they were, <laughs> when they Very were, yeah, yeah, when they really needed the tube to survive or to be growing and gaining in a healthy way. So once you're out of that, the natural drives for eating are hunger is one of them, taste or kind of sensory experience, how the food feels and tastes, curiosity. Sometimes kids, yeah. yeah, yeah, all that's all that stuff is really rich for kids, and so that's a natural motivator. Heidi like to point out. Sometimes curiosity, novelty for kids is enough of a reason to try something out. And then the other really big piece is togetherness and connection. And we touched on this briefly, but family mealtimes are almost a universal time or eating, I guess, in general, mealtimes included. It's just a really universal time for people to come together. And so those are the those are the natural drives for eating. And what we find for some reason is that all of the feeding therapies that we know of, all of the major approaches to feeding therapy in the United States at all, at least, are focused on external drives versus these really fundamental universal drives for eating. They're focused on 
external gains like reward or praise or prizes or something entirely different and external to the child, pleasing an adult, pleasing a feeding therapist. And what we know is that those internal drives are like those ones, the ones that we just discussed uh, are still there. And, And without addressing those things, there's a there's not only a missing piece in the plan, but you're putting your kid at risk to not, you know, by not letting them learn how to listen to their body, which is something that's going to serve them for the rest of their lives. And so one little thing I'd like to point out is we use hunger in our two weaning program. So we help kids in a safe way in conjunction with their medical team, which may feel insurmountable right now, but that's something that is possible. You can establish consensus if information is shared properly with medical teams. What we do is we help kids get hungry in a safe way, experience that hunger, work on all the fundamentals and the trust and the internal drives on top of like kind of the mechanics of eating and the skills that go into it. All of that takes place in the context of hunger or with hunger present. And even still, when we work on hunger, we just like to point this out, hunger, it has to be present in order for those other things to be really truly effective and for it to make a really big difference in how kids are learning to eat. But even when we reduce kids' tube feeds over a course of several days, it's often not enough to see a big change when it's not paired with kind of responsive feeding work or work on rebuilding trust and work on helping kids feel safe enough to re- approach food or approach it for the first time in a way that feels trusting. Because often they learned that food is either scary or confusing or hard work. And so we've got to kind of help them unpack that. And I think, Jenny, one of the things we've learned recently is that, and I could even hear it in your voice when you when you talked about trust, is some of that is rest. Mm-hmm. We don't just have kids be hungry for 10 days with this, with no breaks. You know, they also get some breaks where we make sure that they do have enough to feel a little bit better, where their families get to go do some things. They're not just sitting around in a corner feeling hungry for 10 days because, you know, we did do some of that in the beginning Mm -hmm. and we learned that that wasn't helpful either, that you just can't have prolonged hunger, that there, like you said, needs to be some trust, but there also needs to be some rest. I can't do my, uh, the, the hardest things I have to do in my life well when I'm hungry you know, like we, we have to, it has to be balanced work. And so what we really would encourage people to do is keep in mind that hunger should be the environment or it should be the water in the swimming pool. It should be where learning to eat takes place. It should be done in conjunction with all the other stuff that you're doing. That if it's not there, there's some, there's a big important piece missing, but hunger isn't a magic bullet. It's okay if getting your kids hungry isn't enough. That the other piece that has to be paired with hunger is really this responsive feeding techniques. And responsive feeding is helping kids learn to meet their physiological needs in a way that helps them be autonomous and encourages and fosters trust and connection. And so if whatever you're doing whether you call it responsive feeding or not, if it sounds like it's doing that, if it's helping your kid trust and relate to food and they're responding to it by meeting some more needs and increasing their skills, then you're doing it right. But just remember, hunger is an essential element. It is not a magic bullet. And I think just to kind of give you guys a little bit of an idea of where we're heading with this. We'll talk a little bit more about hunger in other episodes, but we also thought it might be helpful to hear from you. So if you have any comments, please feel free to contact us at 
thrivewithspectrum.com or on any of our social media sites and let us know if you have any idea for further episodes. We are going to be talking about working together with your medical team, but next week we're going to be really excited to have a mom who successfully helped her child navigate from feeding to dependency to becoming a really happy and healthy explorative eater. So we're excited to have her on the show next week. Kenny, it's been a while since I've talked to Virginia, but I've been reading her book again lately. So I'm excited that we're going to get to hear a little bit more about her story and a little bit about how she came to this because she's actually got such an inspiring story. Yes, yes. You gave a little bit of a teaser for next week, but yes, we are excited to have her on. And I think it's going to be really helpful for other parents to hear what worked for them. It's different for every family, but there are some certainly some threads that are common among families and her story is certainly an inspiring one. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tube to Table podcast. Every week, we're going to share our show notes at thrivewithspectrum.com. In the show notes, you can find a summary of what we discussed and links to all the resources that we mentioned. Also, you can visit us on social media and Instagram and Facebook. We can be found at Thrive with Spectrum. And on Twitter, you can find us at Thrive with SP. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media and let us know if you have any input or any topics that you'd really like to see us address. We'll be back next week. 